Uh, if it's your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. We will be in Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, I will pray for us and we will dig on in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day. We are your people. I thank you for a chance to come together and worship you. I thank you for just the simple things. I thank you for the fact that there's sunshine out right now. I thank you that we're here and there's a roof on our building. But I thank you more than anything for coming and living and saving us from ourselves and giving us life. I pray, Jesus, that today we would see that we have one hope and that is in you. And that hope is so great and so grand and so marvelous that it surpasses any other hope we can hope in. Any other dream we can dream is, is lapsed and, and, and surpassed in the goodness and the graciousness that you give us everything. You give us yourself you give us full access to joy. You give us full access to God. And you've saved us from ourselves. And you've made us your own. Not because of anything we've done, but everything that you've done. And so, Jesus, we just praise your holy name now. And just pray, God, for your help. Uh, what is here and is of you, I pray, would just shine in our hearts. And what's just of me would just be forgotten. Because we know that it eventually will be either way. And so, Jesus, we trust in that, hope in that, and love you. Pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so we'll be in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 11. Uh, today we are talking about the idea of hope and what it is to hope uh, in Jesus. And this text is specifically going to focus on the idea of Jesus as our high priest. <clears throat> Excuse me. Wow. Sorry about that. Uh, we're going to look at this idea of Jesus as our high priest. And the beautiful thing about Jesus as our high priest, um, I don't know any high priests, and so I don't necessarily have the context for what a high priest is all the time. But when we hear this language about high priest, uh, this is the idea and the reality that Jesus as our high priest has come and been a human being. God himself came into history and can relate to you in every way imaginable and every way possible because he actually was a human being. He actually was tempted to sin in every way as you are, but didn't. He is our strength and can actually sympathize with us in our weakness. He's not unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, and he's the one that's made us clean and cleansed us and made us right with God, and as our high priest brings us into the presence of God and gives us full, unfettered, and complete access to the God of the universe. And our hope is based on this gospel reality because there's nothing we did to earn that. There's nothing we can do to earn it, but that he himself came down to do that in us. And this is good, good news. Um, and so as we look at that, I, I think what we should see here is we've been tracking through Hebrews. And if you read in your Bible, uh, if you've got a Bible, usually it's going to have in either bold letters or in, ita in little italicized letters. It's going to say little things over the paragraphs, things like, Jesus is better than Moses. Uh, most of our Bibles have it. Um, I never want to undermine your faith and confidence in the Word of God. That is not the Word of God. That is what somebody read and said, oh, I think this paragraph's about this. And sometimes those things are very helpful, and sometimes they're not, but they're not Scripture, so you can take them or leave them, period. Uh, but a lot of times, if we read along with them, we're like, oh yeah, Jesus is the better Moses, and Jesus is better than this, and Jesus is better than this, we think that the point of Hebrews is a comparison game. Uh, like they were hearing it, like, oh yeah, maybe Jesus isn't better than Moses. Uh, when simple logic says, well, yeah, if Jesus is God and Moses isn't, then yes, Jesus is better than Moses. Uh, it's rhetoric. He, he's trying to amp us up so that when we come around to look at it, oh yeah, this thing is, is way better. Uh, this thing that is Jesus, our hope that is in Jesus. And the hope here is that as we look at hope in a redundant way, uh, as we look at hope, 
The aim is that we see that the hope that we have in Jesus is so good and so wonderful and so beautiful that it eclipses any other hope that we could possibly have. There is no hope other than Jesus. And he is our hope and he's the fulfillment of all our hopes. And then our hearts would get synced back up to that reality that that is where our hope lands. And to do that, I think we need to look at three questions. What, is, what kind of hope are we talking about? What do we mean by hope? Because that's helpful if we actually have a handle on the same thing we're talking about. Where, where do we find the origin for that hope? And ultimately, what do we do with this hope? And when I say do, I don't mean uh, you write down ten resolutions because Jesus is your hope. And so you hope to go and balance your checkbook when you get home or whatever. Right? Uh, I'm, I'm talking about that hope. What, what we do with that is living in complete and utter response to the reality of who Jesus is and a life saturated in what he has done and what he is doing uh, as we look at him straight in the face and see how amazing he is. Um, so we'll go ahead and start in verse 11 in chapter 6. So what is it to hope in Jesus? Verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness uh, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So when we say hope, we can mean a lot of different things. I, I hope it's not going to rain because I live in Seattle and it rains like 263 days a year, something like that. I have 364, I probably have the number wrong. But it rains a lot. It's cloudy a lot. I hope it doesn't rain today, but it's going to because it's Washington. Welcome to Seattle. Um, uh, or when we say hope, we think of a dream. Right? It's not anchored in reality in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I hope there's more money in my bank account so that I can do whatever. I hope, I hope to do this someday. I hope to you know, take a trip to, the, to whatever, to this, the, 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 uh, the New Zealand Alps or whatever the heck they call those mountains where they did Lord of the Rings. And, and I hope to go do that thing. And, and it doesn't, it's not actually anchored in reality in any way, shape, or form. It's just the thing you think you want to do. You kind of think about it. Uh, it, it relieves your day because you're at work at the cubicle. And you're like, I wish I was in the snow in New Zealand. Right? But that's not real hope. That's not the kind of hope we're talking about here. The kind of hope we're talking about here, uh, this thing he's talking about when he says, uh, the full assurance of hope. The full assurance of hope. There is a basis for our hope. In Jesus. It's not pie in the sky. It's not someday I'll go do this thing. It, it is rooted in the reality that Jesus came and dwelt among us. It's rooted in the reality that he has washed you clean from all your sins. And if you are a Christian, he is yours and you are his, period. This is not a hope without a, 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 a anchored down into a reality. But not only that, it's a hope that, that has an expectation, right? Yeah, you can have the dream of going to New Zealand. I don't know why I'm picking on New Zealand. If that's your dream, I'm not trying to pick on you. But I expect, with a great expectation, that Jesus is going to wipe every tear from every eye. That Jesus is going to put the world back the way it is supposed to be. That, that I'm going to run the race, and hopefully if you... Uh, are hearing this, that you are in Christ, and if you are in Christ, you are going to run the race because our hope is not based on how good of a Christian we are, but who Jesus is. Because if our hope is anchored in a reality, and that's Jesus, and the basis of our hope is Jesus and what he's actually done, uh, and that we have an expectation that what he says is true and will come true and will happen, and it's, and it's rooted down into something that's actually going to happen. Excuse me. Um, all of a sudden, the reason that I become a Christian is not because I think I'd make a really good Christian. 
right? Because I look and I say, you know, I can get up at, I can get up by 11. Sunday seems like a good day to worship. The Bible seems reasonable enough. Uh, when I was a pagan, uh, my thing was, as I began to become curious about this Jesus fellow, uh, I said to myself, well, I'm a Westerner. Christianity is a Western religion, and if, if all paths lead up the same mountain, might as well be a Christian, right? Why would I explore this other stuff, learn some other language, do some other thing? If, if it's all spiritual and it's all good, then might as well be a Christian, because that's Western, right? The thing is that, that you don't become a Christian because you're going to think you're going to be a good Christian. In fact, if you are a Christian, you're like, man, I don't know what a good Christian is supposed to be, but I'm probably not it, Right? I can do quiet times and make it at 11 and make sure I only watch PG movies or whatever we think it is, but that, that, that our hope is not in how good, quote-unquote, good of a Christian I can be. It's in the goodness and the grace and the hope that I have in Jesus who came and dwelt among us. That's where my hope lies, and that is rooted in a reality because he has done it and it is finished and it's as good as done, right? Uh, likewise, uh, you don't just pick Christianity because it's logical, have you ever heard this one? You may, this may be you, and if this is how you're in Christ and you love Jesus, I'm not trying to pick on you. But sometimes I've heard people say, well, you know what? I, I looked at all the world religions, and Christianity seemed like the most logical. And, and I'll tell you what. Christianity is reasonable. It is good. It is not illogical. That's not what I'm trying to say. But the reason that I'm a Christian is not because it's the most logical when weighed out against the other systems. Because here's the problem that postmodernism points out, that maybe they're all wrong. Yeah, it might be the most logical weight out against 10 other things, but it could be wrong too. Any, anything could fit in that spot. And the more you get down in there, the more you spend time, as I did on the Barnes & Noble uh, spirituality aisle, it turns out there's a new spirituality every week that someone's cooking up and, and someone's making up and someone's uh, uh, supposing and, and proposing and, uh, you know, you know, you eat and you pray and you go on jogs and that's my spirituality uh, and this other thing. This, that, and the other, right? Like, there's so many different things that if it's only just because this is logical, what happens when something seems more logical? I'm not, my hope's not just in Jesus till I find something else to hope in. I have one hope, and it's in him alone, and I have full assurance there. I have hope in Jesus. I have hope in his gospel. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, uh, I'm preaching in the ESV, and sometimes it uses old-timing words, and hopefully and thankfully we're a mossy people, so we know what a slug does. Uh, another way you could translate this is lazy. Mossy, you know what I mean? We live in Washington, it's mossy here. That's, okay. That's what I mean. Sorry. Uh, full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish. Don't be lazy, because we have this hope. We have this thing to actually get after. We have this thing that we have full access to. You have full access to God. Through Jesus. Now, this isn't just, uh, this, is, this is the, uh, we'll use the word, biblical spirituality. Now, spirituality is a little bit of a tough word for us here in Washington because spirituality can mean so many different things in Seattle. But when I say biblical spirituality, I mean a spirituality, a spiritual life rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ says, I get God all the time if I get Jesus. Uh, it's a weird word for us. We use a lot, we'll say things like, uh, I'm, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. You know, that means I kind of do my own thing, whatever. Float around doing whatever. Uh, but that this is actually what we're, we're trying to get after. That it's not just we do religious things or we do Christian things, but that our whole life is saturated and lived in the wake of the reality and the hope that we have 
in Jesus. And that's what he's after in their lives. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. That's a weird sentence, but we will unpack it. So how is it that we can hope in Jesus? How is it that we find this hope in this one? How is it that we find this life lived in the wake of who he is? For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So the thing that we have to lean on as we look at this hope is that we have the promises of God we sing that song here, which is an old-timey song. I love it. Standing, standing, standing on the promises of God. There's a reason we sing that song, because his promises are durable. His promises are good. His promises are true. But his promises are good and true because they're based on his nature. They're based on who he is, as we'll see in a second as we dig into this text. And not only are they based in his nature, but we can actually look at the things that God has done both in history and in our own lives and see his mercy and great greatness and his, his power. And the, and the reality that we're living in the wake of that, we were singing around the, the, the table, right, at, at dinner. We had our little song sheets. You just print them off the internet, and you get, you get them, and you're sitting there, and you're singing them. And when we were singing um, Come Thou Fount, which we actually just sung a second ago, and there's this old-timey word, Ebenezer. And it's one of my favorite words, and I talk about it whenever I have a chance to talk about Ebenezer's, because it's something that you can point to, a monument where you can look at uh, in the Old Testament and say, look what God did. And so we're sitting around the table, and I'm trying to, to lead the family as we're just singing, and I can't sing very well, and here we are, and, and everyone's got their song sheets, and me and Tanya are the only ones that can read, three other children who can't read. We're all sitting there with our song sheets open, but I stopped at the end and said, this is what this song makes me think of. And I began to tell my son about how uh, when he was born, he really should have died. And God was gracious and merciful and miraculously moved and saved his life. And when my daughter was born, I was transitioning off my full-time job where I had retirement and health care to plant a church when we had no idea where my salary was going to come from in any way, shape, or form. We found out we were pregnant with my daughter the week we did that. And we just knew in that moment, Jesus, you've got this. Right, and, and, I, and I began to do that for all three of them. Just say, this is how you personally are an Ebenezer in my life. You are a fulfillment of what God has done. And we're living in the wake of things that God has done. There are things like that all over in your life. You need to appreciate them. You need to see them. You need to hold on to them. Because they remind you of his goodness and his favor in your life. And what he is doing here is he's pulling out the Ebenezer of the Bible. The Ebenezer. The big one. Abraham. Now, what's amazing about Abraham and why we have to talk about nature and promise is because the reason why this is such a big deal is because Abraham is, um, he's not the guy that you want to marry your daughter. Because it turns out when he's in a rough jam and he moves to a foreign country and he thinks they're going to hurt him because they want to marry his wife, he tells his wife every time, why don't you tell these Egyptians that you're my, uh, you're my sister? Tell them that. And then they find out, like, hey, I, the Pharaoh sees him and says, hey, I saw you laughing with her. That is not your sister. That is your wife. And what do they do when they get and they meet Abimelech in another country? What does he say? Why don't you tell him you're my sister? Because that went so well in Egypt when Pharaoh got really angry at us. That is not the guy I want marrying my daughter, by the way. Saving his own neck, putting her on the line. But again and again, he shows uh, there are times where he's just faithful and he hangs on. 
And there's times where he just doesn't believe the promises of God, including when they, they seem to have trouble uh, having a kid and his wife suggests, why don't, why don't you get a girlfriend and we'll work this out that way? He's, yeah, that's great. And then they have a kid that's not the kid that God wanted them to have and that the kid was coming and he promised. But this goes to show Abraham and the promises of God because it's not about Father Abraham. It's not about how awesome Abraham is. It's about how good and gracious God is in fulfilling his promises. So let's look at him. So here we go. Uh, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. In all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. God can do anything except for he can't compromise his character. He doesn't, it's impossible for God to lie because he's all light and no dark. He's all good and no wrong. Because he's good and he's holy and he's right. Now here we see this interwoven idea of the promises of God based on his nature. Did you see that? It's right in there. For people swear by something greater than themselves, but there's nothing greater than God to swear by. So he swears by himself, uh, instead of saying, yeah, I'll honor this covenant, or you can have my Corvette, or whatever, right? Um, so by, they swear by themselves, and all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. And when God desired to show more convincingly, more convincingly, he wants the promises and the nature of his character to be evident. And we'll see not just to Abraham, but to you. This isn't just something, this isn't just some dusty old story. God knew you before the foundations of the earth if you were a Christian. And he had a plan to demonstrate to you this morning. This is the power of God's word, by the way. He had a plan because it's not just about Abraham, it's about us. And I'll show you why. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs, who are the heirs? The heirs of the promise. Who are the heirs? We'll see. The unchangeable character of his purpose, that's what he's trying to show them. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which is impossible God to lie, we, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The heirs are those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Those who have, and I love this word, refuge. Those who have taken refuge in Jesus. Rescue me, Jesus. Save me. Help me. Give me life. Protect me, God. That we've taken refuge in Jesus and hold, that we might hold fast to the hope that is set before us. What are these promises? Galatians will unpack them for us. You don't have to go there. I'll just read it quick. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 15, the Apostle Paul gives us this. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it. Is that right? Yeah. Um, now, the promises were made to Abraham. Here we go again. And to his offspring... It does not say in two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is the durable gospel promise that God has been working since the book of Genesis and the beginning of history to give you life and to save you from yourself. He didn't think it up yesterday. He didn't think it up the day before yesterday. He cooked this thing up 
when he knew we needed to be rescued, and he knew we needed to be rescued, so he sent his son. Now, Galatians is going to say, and, uh, back in Galatians, sorry, lost my spot. Where is it? There it is. And then in 19, it says this. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Nope, that was not it. Here it is. It's in 12. Sorry. Not 12. That's what happens when your sticky tabs get off. Here we go. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, the thing that's happening in Genesis with Abraham is God is teeing up the world to receive a Savior. Human beings break everything that God made good. God's response to us breaking everything is to not clear the slate and say, I'm starting over, we're going with whatever, the meerkats, I don't know. He takes our brokenness, he takes what we break, and he makes a promise to fix it. That promise starts in Genesis 3. It's solidified with the life of Abraham as he makes these promises that one is going to come, this offspring is going to come, the one who's going to fix everything. And so my hope is not in how good of a Christian I am. My hope is not in Abraham's moral character. My hope is in God who fixes broken things like me. There's my hope. He fixes broken things like this guy through Jesus. And Jesus was coming. And that's my hope. And that's why we can hold fast. And that is the basis for our biblical spirituality. So that by, uh, sorry, 19. We have this. As a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is the thing we tether our life to. A hope that enters into the interplace behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We are going to talk about Melchizedek and his funky name and his funky self all next week because there's a lot more. So if you're like, I want to talk about Melchizedek, well, we can talk about it next week because there's a lot there to talk about. But we will get there. But hear this. So it's, it's not just his promises and it's not just his nature, it's what he's actually done. Just like in our lives, we can look back on what he's done and we can stand here and hopefully you can see what he's doing. Hopefully there's things in your life that you might even be like, I don't even know, Jesus, how you're going to turn this thing out. But I know you're at work. I know you're doing something. I don't know how this is going to end. I don't have to know how it's going to end because I know your promises, I know your nature, and I know what you're up to. I don't know how this turns out. That's not my job. You might be going through very, very difficult things in your life. I can't tell you how it's going to turn out other than that Jesus has you in his arms. And frankly, that's way better than me trying to guess how it's going to turn out. Jesus has it. He has you. He loves you. If you're his, he is yours. You are his, and he's got you. And you didn't do anything to do to earn it. You didn't do anything to earn it, which means you can't do anything to lose it. He's got you. That's my durable promise to you. Hold on to that. In the midst of the storm, he's got you. 
And that's what he wants them to see. So I don't, I don't know what tomorrow's got. Jesus does. He's got you. We have this. Assurance that has anchor for the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now this is one of those spots where when we read this, we're supposed to go, oh, whoa. But as, uh, as people we don't, and this is, I always want to say this carefully, this is not to shame anyone. If you're like, I don't know what we're talking about, this curtain, I don't, drapes, curtains, whatever, I don't care. I, I don't know. Um, the guys hearing this for the first time would have been very familiar with the Old Testament. And you may or may not be familiar with the Old Testament. I don't say this to shame you in any way, shape, or form, or that you'd feel bad. I don't read Leviticus. Yeah, because you get to Leviticus and there's all these rules, but there's actually some really good stuff hiding in there. Actually, the whole thing's really good once you learn to read it right. But, but what we're supposed to do when we hit this word curtain, we're supposed to go, oh, and breathe this deep sigh in and be, have our minds blown. But because we don't always read our Old Testament, I didn't, I didn't know what that meant. Who cares? Let's, let's unpack it. Uh, if you go with me to Leviticus. You don't have to go to Leviticus, but you can. Leviticus 16.15 says this. 16.15 is where I'm at. And also it gets weird because this stuff's weird for us. We're not used to this stuff. We don't have to deal with this stuff. But here we go. Uh, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is uh, for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. This he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. Um, one of the cool things is that God's people are unclean, and even in the Old Testament, they're sinning, they're doing wrong things, and God's right there with them. He's right there with them. You screw up, He doesn't leave. He's still with you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. He's not going anywhere. And this is not a license to sin, but sometimes I think we can feel like God's left us when we screw up, like, like he doesn't want to hang out with us anymore or something. The reality is he wants us to turn from our sin and turn to him and be healed and have life. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. This is the good news. This is the good news. But as he begins to talk about this holy place here in Leviticus, this is the thing where there was, in the, there was what was called, sometimes called the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant are the Ten Commandments. And this is the place where God manifests his presence. Not that he's not omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient everywhere else, but that he's manifesting his presence. And as they were going through the, the desert, it was a, a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night to make clear God was saying, I am with you. It's his manifest presence there. Uh, but only once a year, one guy could go into that curtain. And once a year, this guy goes in, the high priest of the order of Levi. Uh, he goes in once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. Now, this is uh, sometimes hard for us to understand because we, we miss that as the Bible's really clear on, the Old Testament people are saved the same way we are. Faith in Jesus by grace. Now here's the problem. Jesus doesn't show up until Matthew, right? It's the first one in your book in the order. It's a Bible joke. Bible jokes are bad. Um, doesn't show up till Matthew. Doesn't show up till around, eh, we get really technical, you know, it was, was it December 25th, 
0 AD. No, it was probably springtime in 4 AD. Doesn't really matter all that much, honestly. But Jesus isn't there yet. They're people who are standing on the promises of God. Now, they relate to God in a different way in the Old Covenant. They're living in the Old Covenant. And this is still grace to them. Leviticus is hard for us because we're not really sure what to do with all the stuff about like trimming your beard. Especially if you can't grow a beard. You're like, what do I do with trimming a beard? I don't know. Because it's over. That all had to do with them displaying to the world that they were set apart and belonged to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. The way we are now set apart in this administration, in the new covenant, is not by the external, but by the internal. We're set apart by God because God has saved us from ourselves and given us new hearts. He takes our hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh. The way we're set apart is we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And God, like the way he took up residence with the people in the tabernacle, he takes up residence within you and I. And collectively, as the church, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So it's no longer about the external, it's about the internal. This is why Jesus says, they will know you're my disciples from the way you love one another because that's an overflow of the love that we have for God because God has shown us his love. So that's evidence of the internal change that comes from the spirit, that comes from Jesus. So we don't have to follow the rules. So if you're like, oh man, I gotta go trim my beard or not trim, I can't even remember if you're supposed to trim it or not trim it or whatever. I think you don't trim the sides. You don't have to do that. You can trim your beard, it's fine. Don't trim your beard, I don't care. Jesus doesn't care, it's over. But at the core here is the reality that these are people who had grace. And what was their grace? They belonged to the God of the Bible. That was grace to them, it's grace to us. It works out differently now. And they're saved the same way we are, by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not their efforts and our grace. It's all Jesus, all the time. But the thing is, is that they had this sacrificial system that Hebrews is going to unpack and say, we don't need it anymore because there's a problem with this, this sacrificial system. God gives us the grace that we can take in a sacrifice to pay for our wrongdoings and our sin. But the problem with that is that it turns out you bring the sacrifice, you offer it, you have sinned against the God of the universe, you offer your sacrifice and you leave and then somebody cuts you off with their cart or whatever they drove in the first century, you know, wherever we're talking here, and you cuss them out or whatever and you got to go back in and get a turtle dove and you got to start over. That's all to show us how much we need Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice who washes us clean from all of our sins. And this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus comes and saves us from ourselves. Now, one guy, one time a year, gets to go behind the curtain. One guy gets to walk into the full and unfettered presence of God in the old covenant. And everyone's waiting for a time, right? They're waiting in anticipation for the time that it isn't going to be that way anymore. They're waiting for it. And it comes in Christ. And so when he says, hey, this hope has gone behind the curtain, we might say curtain, drapes, whatever. But you're supposed to say, wait, he went into the curtain? This is a big deal. Not only that, all, um, all three of the synoptic gospels, that's Mark, Luke, and Matthew, have an account of this. I'm reading out of Mark chapter 14. Uh, I'll start in verse 33. This is Jesus on the cross, dying to give us life, and when, uh, in verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shamati, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. They may or may not be making fun of him there. Probably making fun of him, by the way. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, 
And then someone said, wait, let us see, uh, to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. That guy is definitely making fun of him, which is a horrible, horrible, horrible thing to be doing. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. A curtain that separated the Ark of the Covenant and the manifest presence of God ripped. Where did it rip from? From top to bottom. From heaven to earth. The separation between us and God is mended, healed, and destroyed. Not from us doing things to get to God, that's religion, but from heaven ripping the curtain in two from heaven down to us on the earth. Through the death of Jesus Christ, that sacrifice, that last sacrifice, there is no more need because if you are in Christ, you are his and you're washed clean. There is no more need for sacrifices because the law and its sacrifices, Hebrews will tell us, made nothing perfect. It's finished. It's over. That curtain being torn means that we, you and I, have full and complete access to God through Jesus. Back to Hebrews. And so when he says, we have as this a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where in the old covenant you and I wouldn't have been allowed to go, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner for who? On our behalf. He did this for you. Because you can't. He had to. Having become a high priest forever, we have an advocate forever in Christ. We have access to God forever. He doesn't clock out. He doesn't get tired. Hebrews is also going to tell us, yeah, the other priest, it didn't work out so well because they get old and die and get tired because they keep dealing with everybody's sin all the time. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't take breaks. He doesn't take coffee breaks. He doesn't take five. He doesn't stop advocating for you with the Father. He doesn't stop giving you access to God. He doesn't nap. He doesn't take lunch breaks. He doesn't eat a sandwich. We have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a foreigner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we can trust in the promises. We can trust in his nature because he's good on his promises and we can trust on his work, which is also based on his nature and character. This is our hope. This is what we're supposed to attain to. This is how we hold on. This is how we keep pushing forward. This is how we keep clinging to Jesus. This is why we keep going to his word. This is why we keep coming to him in prayer. This is why we keep loving him. This is why we keep worshiping. This is why we keep serving him. Because we have him. We have him. We don't read our Bible so we'll be a good Christian. We read our Bible because it's the voice of God and we have him. When we disbelieve this, we all have hopes. hopes. Hopes always lead us to feeling that we're saved from something. Our hopes always are something to get us out of something. If I can dream about the Alps, they're probably not called Alps. I don't know why I keep calling them Alps, but there they are. The big, tall Lord of the Rings mountains in New Zealand helps me make it through my day. It's a dream hope. 
It's not attached to reality. It's not based on, on concrete evidence that I have hope. You have no greater hope than the evidence that is in the cross of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. When we miss this, when this doesn't just eclipse everything for us, we miss it all. Because this is ultimately not a hope that says, I'm going to hope in Jesus until something better comes along. Things are falling apart in my life right now, and I really need some help. And so if Jesus can help me, that's cool. You know, if uh, this other guy can help me, that's great. You know, if a lucky charm, you know, lucky charm can help me, not the cereal, but like a four-leaf clover or something, cool, I'll do that. Those things are nothing compared to this. Compared to this promise, compared to this thing we're involved in, compared to this thing we have in him. This is not a bet. Right? This is not, well, I don't really believe in anything, but if I believe in Jesus and that turns out to be right, then I'm okay. But that's probably better than not believing in anything. That'll give me a ticket to heaven. This isn't our ticket to heaven. Jesus isn't the ticket to our hope. He's not our cosmic butler, right? Everyone has something that there is their hope that they think will get them to some other thing, right? It's working hard at school so you can get a better job. It's, uh, you know, working hard on Twitter so everybody will love you and care about you. It's, it's whatever we have this thing. We just do this and I'll get this other thing and I'm banking on this and I'm betting on that. And we, as you guys who are Christians, you're just banking on Jesus, He's your bet. You got 50 down on Jesus. This is not a trip to the dog races. This is Jesus Christ. It's anchored in reality. It's anchored in reality. Uh, it's not Jesus plus something else. It's not I'm banking on Jesus and something else. My dad used to make me watch these horrible, horrible, um, they're pretty good now, but at the time they were really scary. These like claymation, I don't know if they were pirate movies, but they were monsters. But honestly, all I remember is a giant cyclops and a guy saying something effective, you know, trust in God, but tie up your camel. And we kind of have this mentality, you know, I'll believe in God, I'll, I'll believe he's there, he's my safety net, he's my backup, but I have to do these other things so it'll work out for me. Yeah, yeah, if Jesus can get me that, that's great, but this other thing, this will get me that, rather than saying, wow, Jesus, would you please empower me to follow you, and if that includes this journey on this other thing that's good and you want to bless it, that's great. Is that one making sense? The camel reference may have lost you. It's Jesus and something else. I'll hope in Jesus and the fact that I've got this really awesome, comfortable couch, and then someone breaks in and steals your awesome, comfortable couch, and your whole floor falls out from under you. You're like, that was the couch. That was my security. That was my hope. That's what I did when I got off work. That's where I found my comfort. And all of a sudden you realize it wasn't all in Jesus. It was in Jesus and some couch. It was Jesus and they have a, a vacuum in the new Odyssey. And if you drive a minivan, you're like, a, a van with a vacuum is hope to save me from three kids in a van. Right? We quickly realize our hope is in Jesus and something else. And if we're not careful, then Jesus is just insurance, and that other things we're actually hoping, hoping in. And the scary thing is that we oftentimes don't realize what that thing we're hoping in, that thing that's going to make our life perfect, that thing, if I could just have it, everything will be fine, until that thing is yanked out from under us, and we're left empty and hollow. And the thing that we miss is, man, maybe, maybe the, the PhD and whatever is exactly what Jesus has for you. And maybe that opportunity is gone. 
and you realize you're empty and you're alone, and you thought that was going to be it. That was how I was going to know that I was somebody. That was how I was going to know my dad or my mom was wrong or my uncle was wrong or my kid brother was wrong or whatever. It gets yanked out from under you, and the thing that you miss is, yeah, maybe you're not going to be a PhD in Klingon or whatever. And the promises are not gone. Yeah, it's gone. You have two seconds to live on planet Earth. Your eternal security is not in a PhD in Klingon. It's in the promises of God. It's in the reality of Jesus. It's that you're his and he is yours. That is your only hope. And this hope eclipses all those things. And not only does it eclipse all those things, but allows you to stand there open-handed. God, this is what I think you want me to do with my life. Oh, you said no. Okay. I still have you. I lost that other thing, but I have you. I've lost everything. And I still have you. Which means I still have everything. Because of my hope in him. Ultimately, I think what we, I hope we see here is this isn't how we look to Abraham and lean into that's how you live life. The imitation that he's calling us to up in the top of the verses is imitating those who have made the anchor of their soul Jesus, who have strapped themselves to Jesus and are hanging on for dear life. Hanging on. So what is our hope in? It's in Christ. It's in Jesus How can we hope? We can hope because of his unchanging nature. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can hope because he's done it all, because he's made us his, because we are his and he is ours. And what do we do with it? Right? Two things. Anchor of the soul. You strap yourself to Jesus and you never, ever let go. I don't hardly ever reference the three movies I've ever seen, but I reference one and here's number two. I just can't help but have that image of Lieutenant Dan in Forrest Gump, not because I like referencing movies, but he's just strapped to the stupid shrimp boat. And if you don't know the movie, you don't even need to rent it. The dude straps himself to a stupid shrimp boat and the storm blows and wails and he goes and he goes. That's what we do with Jesus. We hang on to him when it seems like all else is lost, when it's the darkest it could possibly be. We hang on to him. We hang on to his promises because we know they're true. We anchor our soul. The Greek word is where we get the word psyche. Our very inner being rooted in him because everything else can get taken away. He will not. Everything else can be destroyed and he will not. Everything else can fall apart and he will not. But frankly, we need to have our whole being rooted in him, not just when everything's falling apart. Because honestly, when everything's falling apart, I'm more in my Bible, I'm more thinking about him, I pray more, I think about him more, I'm trusting him more. It's in the day-to-day of my life that I need my soul anchored in who he is. It's when I'm working. It's when I'm driving. It's when I'm sleeping. My life needs to be in him, in my comfortable bed, in my warm house, anchored in him, anchored in him. Because all we're left to do here is anchor our soul in him and take refuge in him, take cover in him, be covered by him, be protected by him, 
follow him and love him. And this is the fuel that will allow us to actually have biblical spirituality. A life that actually is going to him again and again and again, realizing who he is and who we are in the wake of Jesus. And his blood broke, body broken and blood shed for us. That we are his and we belong to him and there's no other hope. And in this hope, there's joy. In this hope, there's refreshment for our soul. In this hope, there's a power to turn to him when it's not nice and sunny, when things are going well. We walk it out because this is our hope for life. This is the only hope that you have with your kids. This is it. You can hope that they have that PhD in Klingon if you so desire. You can hope whatever. I don't care if they pump gas or have a PhD in Klingon or whatever. I have no hope because it turns out I fall short as a parent on my own. The only thing I have is to continue to show my children Jesus. I have no hope to forgive other people who sin against me. Because I am an entitled person who gets defensive and doesn't like it. But my hope is that I've been forgiven. And because I've been forgiven, I can forgive others. This is it. We strap ourselves to Jesus. We strap ourselves to the gospel. And we do not let go. Because ultimately, because Jesus went behind that curtain, I can go behind the curtain. Because Jesus did that, I have full access to the God of the universe. That is what my life is about. My life is about knowing him and loving him more and responding to that by loving others. If you do not know Jesus, there is one way to God. His name is Jesus, the forerunner who goes before us to make a way for us to know him. This is it. It's Jesus, and the beautiful thing is there's nothing, it's not about you doing anything. It's about him doing everything and you taking refuge in him. Take refuge in him. Let's pray. King Jesus, this is your day. We have one hope, and that's you. My hope does not rest in my ability to do anything. My hope rests in you and what you have done, and that in doing so, you've given us everything. There's nothing greater than you. There's nothing greater than this hope. We love you. We trust you. And we pray, Jesus, to rest in you and your completed work for your glory. Jesus, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.